0: Everyone says that Africa has a huge potential, which is true. And that's what also the Chinese are doing. All those Chinese businesses, which are so successful, especially in running businesses, when you ask them what they're doing is that everything they plan, they plan for decades if not centuries.
1: Welcome to your personal branding podcast with Bernard Kelvin Clive, your number one career and business podcast in Ghana bringing you expert interviews and insights into personal branding, personal development, and publishing. Now, here's your host, Bernard Kelvin-Clive. All right, so before we get started, I want to introduce you to my latest book, Digital Disruption, personal brands that will crush it after the pandemic. That's Digital Disruption personal brands that will crush it after the pandemic to download a copy and pay any amount just go to bkc.name slash ebook bkc.name slash ebook and just download it for any amount all right welcome to another edition of your personal branded podcast i'm your host bernard kelvin clive and this is a rather exciting time and season which we are in now the global pandemic but how are companies or business thriving especially in africa Today on my show, I have a special guest, Marek, who let me let me I'll put this who's a partly African and partly Polish. <laughs> Marek, welcome to the First Number on the Podcast. <laughs>
0: it's so great to be here. Thank you for the invitation,
1: Bernard. As a pleasure, I treasure. Marek is a Polish entrepreneur who had moved to Nigeria in around 2012, 13, and boom, a lot of things happened to him. Marek, let us hear a little bit more about who Marek is.
0: Yes, I'm going to give you the two-minute version. <laughs> Obviously, I'm Polish-born. Um, I started my first business when I was 19. That was the early 2000 years in Poland during economic growth. Uh, we had built one of the first financial brokerage companies, and we made a lot of money there being too way too, way too young. So I made my first big, big money. But then the 2008 crash came, uh, also in Poland, and I lost all my money and even got myself into a bigger debt. Uh, but I fell in love with startups in the process, Um because I was watching CNN, you know, TV documentaries about some hipsters in Silicon Valley writing on their MacBooks in Starbucks making millions, and I figured if they do this, I can do it as well. And um I, I, I had a lot of ups and downs in that startup, uh, startup sector in Poland, but one particular company I was able to build, which was a marketplace in a very particular sector, because it was funeral sector, mm. And that company has grown significantly. And in the process, I have met guys who have launched a big internet company called Rocket Internet, which essentially founded Jumia in Africa, which is now a a very big e-commerce, probably known to everyone uh, company. And that was 2012 and they were about to, um, to launch this whole organization and they basically invited me to join the team. At that time, I thought that I'm just so amazing that they invited me, but Apparently, not too many people wanted to work with them, <laughs> and they basically said, "If you move to Nigeria, if you're going to help us build this from scratch, um, you're going to end up getting some shares in, in this business." And that's why I went because I really had not much to, to, to lose. And uh, and since then, I've been really focusing only on building online businesses in the Sub-Saharan Africa region. This is how I fell in love with the whole environment. I left. I left Jumia. Uh, After four years, the company ended up going public, but I I stayed in Nigeria, then moved to South Africa and and, and opened another business. Um, Yeah, in the process of of building different businesses in Nigeria, I also got myself into trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they always say um, it's always good to open a, a company in an exotic country with a local strong partner, like a godfather, to take care of you, protect you from the bad guys. But what no one tells you is that sometimes the Godfather decides that he doesn't need you in the company anymore <laughs> and And that's what happened to me essentially one one day in Poland um, i was uh, I was traveling and I was essentially stopped at the airport, and uh, I realized that in the system there's this big arrest warrant after me in Interpol mm. and apparently, I have to be now extradited to Nigeria and be put to jail for twenty one years for some high scale financial fraud. No one knew anything. Uh But then I got a phone call from Nigeria saying that uh, as long as I will give back the company, I will sign all the papers and uh, basically give out all the power of the company and the first and all this strange arrest warrant will disappear in the matter of days. And that's how I decided that I am way too stubborn just to give it up like this. And <laughs> if I get out of this alive, I will write a book about it and it's going to be a nice book. It took me two years of legal fights, both in Nigerian courts, uh, French courts and Polish courts. Everything is in the book. Um, but I ended up being able to prove that all this was a one huge hoax and, uh, regained my freedom, innocence. And, um, now I, I'm able to continue my business and I'm still in love in Africa. And, um, I'm always trying to promote Africa every time I, I, I have a chance to speak that even though what happened to me, um, uh, nothing has, Changed in terms of my law, and the big irony of this whole situation is that uh, there's a lot of bad PR about, for example, doing business in Africa or Nigeria, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I was also a victim of those stereotypes. Uh, and I actually the local partner that I was dealing with was a person that lived in Nigeria for many many years, but he was he didn't have a Nigerian passport. Uh, and the people that really helped me was the Nigerian courts. And some Nigerian, my Nigerian, Nigerian lawyer and a lot of Nigerian people of goodwill that decided to help me in a lot of, uh, many the de- very, very dangerous situations that I had to had to deal with. So that was a big lesson and irony that you just don't believe the uh, stereotypes. Um, and that's where I'm going to put the dot. That's my story. In other two minutes, that was uh, probably four minutes or five. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So let, let's, let me take you a little way back before you go to Nigeria and before you go into entrepreneurship in your book. Okay. Chasing the Black Unicorn. you part of the introduction. You shared a story about you trying to woo a lady back in senior high and junior high. You try some few strategies here and there, and sometimes almost they're succeeding and they bounce you here. There's a question. How has trying to woo a girl taught you about business and branding?
0: Oh, oh my God, yeah. Actually... Part part of this book is also explaining my journey and and trying to to look from hindsight on all the things that happened to me when I was a teenager and how this cre- really shaped my personality because I was I was like one of those you know when when you think about those Hollywood movies about kids in school you have the popular kids. Then you have those geeks, which are really fat. <laughs> they are good with computers and there are some beautiful girls. So I was one of those fat kids that were afraid of everything that were bullied by those popular guys. And obviously I fell in love with a girl. And, um, and, um, the only way for me to be able to be close to a girl I was in love with is to help, help her with mathematics. So I actually, you know, used my skills to be close to her and 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 found found my way to be to be around her, but then uh, obviously this didn't work out because she treated me as a friend and then what I later realized is that subconsciously when i when I got older and I you know, wasn't fat anymore, and I made my first money and I was able to be independent, everything that I was doing was to prove that you know ten year fourteen year old inside you that he is not. You know he doesn't need to be bullied anymore. I was like I was like a victim of that fourteen-year-old inside me because everything I was doing was was to really fit that kid inside your his fears. Yeah.
1: Mm. So y- you were able to overcome this kind of childhood bullying. How did this help you when you started entrepreneurship,
0: trying to run your own business? Anything you yeah. can hit with that? Yeah, this really helped me a lot. You know, when I when I look at it now, is is that it's a like a double edged sword because I had this huge internal need of proving everyone around me that I can be on the top. Now, this gave me such a motivation to work my ass off every every day. I, at one point when I when I lost some money, I would I would work as a bartender in. In, in two nightclubs on the weekends and every day during the week in the evening and then during the day, Monday to Friday, I would still go to the office because I had such an internal need to, to make money and, and prove everyone wrong. And then on top of it, once you were feeling those needs to prove everyone around you, then you were, uh, was you were rewarded because the money came and, and some power came and then obviously car, nice cars and nice clothes came and obviously with that came attention of the girls, which was something that I always wanted to have as a 14-year-old. So in in the first stage, you realize this is helping you so much in business, that's amazing. But then in the long term, you realize that this kind of internal hunger, this void that you want to fill out will never go away. And in the long term, it will actually eat you alive. Mm. So unless you find some healthier motivations... You will, you will be, you will burn out, and that's what happened to me. Which I'm also explaining in the book. Um, there was a stage in my life when I was like 23. I, I thought I have everything I ever wanted, and then I just couldn't wake up in the morning, and I would just stay in, in bed or, or stay in the shower or in the, in the bathtub for the whole day. Now I know that this is called burnout or depression, but at that time I had no idea what's happening to me, why I don't want to, you know, get out of bed anymore, although I, I'm getting exactly what I wanted. You know. Because I had the wrong motivation inside me, it was it, it, it was giving me some drive, but only in the short term. In the long term, it was hitting me alive. That's how I see it. So one,
1: the clear thing is that one, you need to begin the right motivation and right purpose. Sometimes we are driven by external factors or to please others here and there, but it really need to come from within the passion. So that when you reach the point that you feel like you've been giving all out, that will be your factor that will. Keep pushing you that your why is clear your your passion your reasons
0: are so clear correct correct i mean i couldn't agree more it's that's that's, as cheesy as it may sound it's very important to find that healthy motivation that is kind of coming from the hmm. It, it just i don't really know how to define it it has to be healthy you have to realize that it helps you grow and be better and and, and happier, and you can't just be focusing on feeling the void that you have created on your own in the first place. It's like a little bit with, with alcohol, Um <laughs> uh, that alcohol, drinking alcohol for those people that breathe, and they say that it relaxes them, that alcohol actually helps you relax because it was the alcohol that made you stressed usually in the first place because your body is craving it. You know? um, um, and uh, i I think some resemb- i I, feel, I see some resemblance here um, you just you don't want to be focused on feeling the 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 hole in, inside you you wanna you want to build something not 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 feeling the hole that you have created in the first place
1: now let's transition that again a little bit forward here doing business in Africa what have you learned what are some of the lessons key lessons someone listening to us now may want to start doing some investment or um, do some business in Africa. What are the key one, two, three, four, five pointers you might want to advise, especially online business in Africa?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, so for me, for an for an entrepreneur slash manager that moved to Nigeria in 2012, um, the first thing I had to learn was how to unlearn certain things, mm. and it, I, I I and I look at it both from the strictly business standpoint and more personal standpoint so let me unpack this um at certain stage when you think you already have some experience you have some background you you think you intuitively know a lot of things you're used to them you subconsciously accept them as normalcy and then when you move to a totally new environment you are met with a totally new reality and everything that you thought is so normal and obvious is working in a totally different way and for you not to get frustrated is you have to learn how to uh, unlearn. And, and I'm going to give you an example right. uh, from the business perspective. Um, when we m- moved with this com- big company called Rocket Internet to, to build a lot of online businesses in Nigeria, then in Kenya and Senegal, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire and, and other countries, we essentially wanted to build the Amazon of Africa. We wanted to build the Expedia of Africa. We wanted to build the Uber of Africa and so, and so on and so on. Because this company has done that already in Latin America. They've done this in Asia or in Europe. And we had a very clear playbook. When you enter a market and you see that the banking system is more or less working pretty well, and then you have telecoms, which are providing people with the Internet, then now is the time to build those online business models. Um, and, oh my God, how wrong were we? Then <laughs> That after, you know, two or three years into operations in Nigeria we realized that we took a lot of things for granted. We we, You took for granted whether the infrastructure is set up properly. I'm talking roads, logistics companies that allow you to deliver goods that people buy online. And we also took for granted that also online payment systems have to work properly because without it, you know, people will never buy anything online. And only after two years we realized, oh, my God, we have to now take a step back to figure out all this. And that is because you would never think of these issues like infrastructure when you run a normal business in, in Europe. Uh, what I've also realized is that, you know, what is, what is, what was typical for, for a European middle class. So you, you have a house and, and you have a running water and, and, and power. Uh, that's like normal, but in order to have your cook or a driver, that's like super expensive. Only rich, rich millionaires have that. Well, in Nigeria, I've realized that, you know, so many people had, had their drivers or even someone helping them at home with, with the cook or, or a cleaner, et cetera, because there were so many people working for a much, much lower salary. But in order to have an, a house with electricity twenty four seven and running water in Lagos and Nigeria in two thousand twelve, you'd have to pay crazy man, like thousands of dollars per month. So it was totally the other way around. Uh, and and that infrastructure differences make it make the business to to have problems in totally different places so an experienced manager of a european business <laughs> is like a junior manager from from nigeria or from africa because the problems he was dealing with in in europe 80% of those problems will never occur here um, mm-hmm. and this is why this is why so many small local entrepreneurs so many small local companies in nigeria or in kenya that we were competing with essentially they had much smaller budgets but they were so much more effective because they were, I call it street smart. And I always use the example of uh, traffic in Lagos. There's this big bridge called third mainland bridge when it's always like huge traffic all day there, <laughs> uh, or other parts of streets. And there are two ways to really go through the traffic. You either are very rich, you have your own SUV, you hire police people to drive in front of you and behind you and they will be, you know, putting on their signals and having police guys with with guns and they will scare, be scaring out everyone. <laughs> That's one way to go through the traffic slowly, but you push everyone out out of you. And but you can also, you know, hire an okada, like a guy on a bike, and just go like a slalom between those cars, and you, you may be faster. You know? <laughs> so uh, I was always using this example. And then on the cultural perspective, for me it was also super hard to, to switch because there were a lot of cultural differences and some behaviors that were normal for me were not normal for someone in Nigeria and the other way around. And I'm going to give you an example. Um, when he, there are two people in, in a coffee shop, for example, and, uh, and I, was, I was in a coffee shop in Lagos and two people were sitting next to me, two guys, and they were talking to, the, to themselves very loudly. And I was and I was speaking to someone and I made a comment. I think that they have very rude speaking to themselves so loudly considering that they're in a public space. And because in Poland, like you want to, you want to talk to someone very calm, very quiet in a quiet way because you want to respect other other people's space, et etc. et cetera. And then the person I was speaking to said, you know, but the tribe they're from, actually, when you talk to someone quiet in a public space, that means you have something to hide. Right. You're a fraud. Mm-hmm. But if you speak loudly, that means you have nothing to hide. And I'm like, oh, my God, if I didn't know that, I would just consider them rude, where, in fact, they're just sticking to their cultural traditions that for them are obvious. So, um, And and that learning then really helped me a lot in many other situations. To always assume that not everything that you know is also as obvious as the new environment you're entering. Whether I'm entering a new business, a new sector, I'm going to a new country. Uh, And that ability to listen and not assume that everything I know is actually the same way here, really helped me at later stages. So that's the cultural aspect. I first told you about the, you know, the business aspect, and then this, the cultural aspect. Those were those two key learnings for me.
1: Well, so these three things stand out from what you learn in doing business in Africa. One, you need to unlearn a lot of things, uh, and two, the infrastructure difference is so huge. you need to really come to understanding how to manage that, and three, the cultural differences. because once you you Get yourself used to our breast, understand the system, then you can do business in Africa. So now tell me, how yeah. do, do you move forward with this, knowing these things, now able to come to power with this, understand that these are the systems and the culture, these are the things that you need to online. is something you really learn. How can you profitably do business, able to grow, uh, junior travels almost the Amazon for the, for the, for the four years that in which you were in a company. How did you do this?
0: Yeah. So you have to be very smart in addressing your market, because everyone says that Africa has a huge potential, which is right. true. Africa has an amazing potential when you look at the next 10 or 20 years. It's going to be the most populous region of the world, most urbanized, part. you know, the, the middle class is growing, et cetera, et cetera. But when you get into the detail, you realize that the devil is in the detail, and I'm going to give you an example. <laughs> um Everyone is saying that you know middle class is growing and it's doubling every couple of years and it's already like 25 percent of the population. That's good, but the, the definition of middle class in Africa is much different than the definition of middle class in Europe. I think you're making nine dollars per day in Africa, you're already considered as middle class. But you know you can't be as you know you can be a great consumer. You can't you can afford to go to a hotel every weekend if you're making just ten dollars per week, obviously. So then uh, you look at the numbers that. Seventy percent have already access to the internet, hmm. um, uh, but then how many of those seventy percent in Africa can actually afford to buy something? How many of them have a smartphone that can browse oh. websites and pay online? Have you know a de- debit card or can can make online online transfers? Then you look at Nigeria, which is, for example, the you know the biggest or second biggest economy in Africa, and you have two hundred million people. Uh, and many people, many times people compare Nigeria to India, you know, total GDP, et cetera, et cetera. But then when you look level deeper, you realize that out of 200 million people in Nigeria, only 2 million, so like a city of 2 million, only those 2 million people make more than $10,000 per year. So you're essentially building a business for a city of 2 million people because if you have a product that is typical for a middle class in Europe, which in my case was website to book hotels and flight tickets, right? Or or, or, uh, or bus tickets later. So um, if you really want to build a business that scales, you have to start with some basic, basic goods. Just like, for example, now a lot of companies in Nigeria, uh, Nigeria in sub-Saharan Africa, you have a lot of fintech companies that, that are g- growing because really that's a basic good. It's like food in technology. In your real life, you have to have food. And in, in, uh, in, in the internet phase, in the online sector, in order for you to do anything really, become an active member of the ecosystem, you have to have access to financial uh, basic services, which is banking, insurance, uh, you know, maybe savings, and, and but also lending you know, lending some money. So this is like the, the basic stuff, and everyone is going into it. When you have a product which has, you know, has a higher price point, you're going to have a huge huge challenge to really identifying your clients because they are so scattered because mm-hmm. they are really so small because the 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 difference between the rich and the poor is just so extremely <laughs> uh, huge in africa there's this 1% that has 90% of the wealth and then the middle class is essentially really uh, really really small so you have to be really careful about what is your price point and how really, how many people really can afford your product and can you, can you scale your business with that product? So that, so what we did in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in Jumia Travel when we had hotels, we've realized that you can't make business when you can only book a four star and five star hotel in, in, in Lagos, right? Because only few people can afford them. Mm-hmm. And all, all those foreigners were not using Jumia Travel. They were using booking.com or Expedia. So we wanted to build a service for the local people, local Nigerians, local Kenyans. So what we did is we went to the city, to the country and we signed up all the hotels, including the cheapest ones, the cheap of the cheapest. You know, sometimes I had a hotel when it was hard to say if that's the bathroom or a bedroom, (laughs) but (laughs) these people are also booked by uh, people that don't want to spend that much money. And we also put them on the on the platform just to have a service. Which which meets the needs of also those lower income people, because if you don't address the needs of lower income people, you will never build any significant business. It's really there's only a handful of companies in, in Africa that have built scale really. Yeah. Um, like Dangote is one of an outlier, yeah, because they, they have built scale on a on a basic goods on a on a low margin business. Everyone is trying to build a high scale. Excuse me, low-scale, high-margin business because it's easier to manage. Yeah? You're selling luxury goods. You, you, let's say you're selling very, very expensive furniture. You're gonna have one client per month feel good, uh, but it's really challenging to build a business that is high-scale, uh, low, low-margin. That is especially extremely challenging in Africa because the infrastructure costs are so, so high.
1: Wow. So with all these things, once you understand them and uh, how to weave your way through, you're sure to have a level of spectrum, but you don't go with high-end products because you might you will get only a few people. But on the reverse side, you you could have a few or percentage of people buying luxurious products and services. How do you uh, address that?
0: So... We never really focused on those those top one percent, you know, because that wasn't our mission. We wanted to build products that address the the mass market, really, mm, mm, mm-hmm. and th- th- that was the ambition. Like right? it, it it wasn't in our interest to to focus on selling flight tickets to Dubai first class and and a, and a hot and a hotel night in you know in Echo Hotel in. Uh, uh, in Lagos or in Movenpick in, in in Nairobi, because obviously yes, this is a high high-end client. But we didn't come, you know, we didn't invest in those in those emerging markets to to serve those clients who, who could use our competition from Europe anyway. We wanted to address the mass market that was really un, untapped. You know? We we didn't compete with other online travel agencies. We compete competed with the habit of not booking a hotel online. So, uh, for example, I'll give, you, uh, I'll give you this. 70% of our marketing budget in 2014 and 14 went on offline marketing. Uh, there was only so much money we could spend on Google, but the market wasn't growing as fast as we wanted. So we started exactly. having kiosks in shopping malls. We started having our own people at the airports that would go to people waiting in the line to book a ticket or check in. And we would ask them if they already have a hotel booking. Uh, or we had the same people at the bus station. Like, where are you traveling? Are you sleeping at your family or you're sleeping in a, like, a cheap hotel? Have you already booked it? Uh, and, and our, our people, our employees would help them book, book a, book a hotel on the phone. And that's how we educated them about an option that you can really actually book something, um, online instead of just, you know, enter, entering the city and then, you know, asking around. So when you're, when you're Pepsi, then you probably can grow your sales only by kicking out Coca-Cola, right? Because Coca-Cola (laughs) is everywhere. Uh, The market is saturated. But here we we kind of wanted to build the market for ourselves by uh, making more people use online to book a hotel Mm. uh, in that particular case. Now, now
1: regarding branding... What are your advice on branding? What have done so far in doing business in Africa? What advice do you give to brands and branding business and what you've learned in the past hmm. years?
0: When someone tells me about, asks me about the branding, I always have this example in mind that there's this sugar company in Nigeria. I don't remember the name. I think there's a lion on their package. They haven't changed their packaging For the last 40 years, it's still like this old industry blue paper on the package looks so ugly, but they've never changed because they never needed it. Um, And then you always ask yourself, is it because this brand is so strong that people are used to it from a nostalgia perspective? Because you can argue that this is because of that. They never wanted to change it. Or is it because people really don't care because they are so price sensitive? That none of the branding strategy can help. It's all about the price. Uh, and I don't I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is that uh, I could really gar- uh, confirm that Nigerians, Kenyans are extremely price sensitive in terms of comparing different products. Because I know that from autopsy. And uh, it was always hard to educate about choosing a product which is maybe more expensive but it lasts longer. That was always the issue. And then you have a very interesting case of Dangote again that has the same brand for selling both cement and sugar, which really does not happen too often. <laughs> um, um, it, it, it's definitely challenging because... Um, it's And then again, it's so hard to build a Pan-African brand because, you know, many times two, two different tribes in Nigeria have more differences between each other than, I don't know, friends and 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 Poland in Europe there's so many tribes inside one country with different languages cultures that you know even different tribes in Nigeria have to speak to each other in English because otherwise they wouldn't understand each other so mm, extremely extremely challenging um, to to build a proper brand in Africa because of the complexity um, and the dynamics of the cultures languages so many people etc etc and um, I don't have a recipe here. I can only confirm that this is one of the big, big challenges in Africa. That because that is a result of the um, complexity of the social structure. You can't really say that any country is homogeneous. Here. In Pol- Poland, where I come from, you know, 80% of people are Roman Catholics and 99% people are white. So we're all the same. <laughs> and uh, It's probably much much easier to build a product that is liked by everyone when people are so so similar to each other. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The complexity of doing business now. uh, Yeah. The the reference that you made is the Saint Louis sugar that you mentioned. The blue Saint Louis sugar. Correct.
0: Chasing the black unicorn. What is it all about? What's the book? What's the book about? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah. So the the original title is Chasing Black Unicorns. So it's plural. Um mm-hmm. so let me start with the title. Um yeah, yeah. Sure. So Unicorns in obviously besides being an animal from the dreams also mm-hmm. in the in the online business world is considered uh, when a company is private and has a valuation that is higher than 1 billion dollars. And that is like the dream that everyone is chasing. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to build a company that is, you know, big like that. And that is really healthy. Only maybe one person out of a million who wants to is able to build such a company many people on the way you know go bankrupt destroy their lives but everyone really wants to build that so this is why i said it you know it's it's chasing you we're all chasing this unicorn chasing those dreams probably no one none none of us will be able to do it but we're all chasing because we just love the chase (laughs) and uh, and black because you know in my case um uh, it was, it was all about chasing the unicorn in Africa. <laughs> and, um, uh, Africa for many years was for, for a typical European. When I was a kid in school, um, I learned really only two things about Africa. Uh, in school, that uh, the Europeans, British, the French colonized Africa, and they they decolonized it, and the way they decolonized Africa was even worse than the way they colonized it. <laughs> That's what they taught us. So I was uh, an unwillingly and ignorant about Africa. I only learned everything when when I when I arrived, uh, and when I really fell in love with the continent. But for us, the African continent was always like a dark spot on the map because you never. Knew what's what is there because there was so much going on in Europe. We, no one ever taught us about this. So this is where 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 the word comes uh, black and um, the book is really um, summarizing my journey from this young kid that somehow was bullied in school. There's one chapter about it that then became rather more successful in Poland, and that's what I'm trying to understand the, the, how my childhood affected my. My business and then the main part about the book that the second part of the book, sorry, is, is about all my learnings from, from running this online businesses in Nigeria and Kenya and other countries and all those mistakes that I have done. It's all very detailed in book because I really, this is more of a business book. Um, but there are a lot of autobiography stories and episodes to make it more entertaining. That's how I thought it, thought about it. It's, it's a hybrid of an autobiography and a business book, which was my main goal. So, because I realized that, you know, there's not enough literature about running a tech business, especially in in Africa. You can read TechCrunch or some other literature or or articles online, but there hasn't been much, you know, first person uh, relations about, about doing this. And then the third stage is about, you know, my fight in Nigerian courts, in French courts, in Polish courts. The whole drama of trying to get myself out of this whole crazy Interpol corruption case, um, which which turns this book into a almost like a you know <laughs> criminal slash adventure book with with um, uh, how do you call it with recording conversations without me, I don't know what's the word in English. I was plugged, I had some microphones inside my. Uh, Below my clothes because I would go for a meeting that someone was representing the person that was uh, blackmailing me, and I had to record the conversation so I could have the proof in court, etc., yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So it became like a you know CIA FBI criminal <laughs> book. So a little bit everything, and um, and for me, for me as a person, and for me as an author, writing this book was also important because once it was very motivating for me because it was very painful two years of my life. Uh, where I had to spend a lot of time talking to police courts, defending myself, talking to lawyers, and then writing this book. I was depressed for a while, and it, writing this book kept me motivated because I knew if I get out of this alive, I have a nice ending to my my story and then at the same time, um, it summarizing certain part of your life, like when you're peaceful, when you're relaxed, and you're trying to look what happened to at what happened to you from the hindsight. And you're writing this down. That's where you're really learning. Oh, my God, this is what happens to me. And this is why I became a person like this and like that and like that. So uh, one of the biggest lesson is, is actually for me just by writing this book. And I encourage everyone to, to to writing down their experiences, stories, because you learn a lot when you can look at it all again from hindsight. That's where everything starts to make sense. <laughs> So
1: true. I, I that's true. I believe that I had both that every entrepreneur must write a book. That we have different perspective and unique stories. So we might go through similar experiences, but our perspective and experience will help shape other people.
0: Sometimes we need to help ourselves better. Correct. Correct. Everyone's fighting a private war no one knows about, <laughs> and um, and I. I someone asked me yesterday, today actually because i had another interview what's what's the most important advice you remember and there was an advice that was given to me i just watched it on youtube it was will smith he had uh, received an award and i remember he was so pumped up and he said the biggest most important advice is that you always have to ru- keep running and you have to keep reading and <laughs> he said about reading is that you're not that special 99% of all your problems in life, someone else already had, and most likely he wrote or she wrote a book about it. <laughs> so keep reading. Right. You'll be t- learning from other people's mistakes. And then he also said, keep running because a lot of, one of the biggest challenges of being an entrepreneur is to, is to deal with problems, and deal with uh, people saying no to you and deal with the inner, of, inner you telling you it's enough, stop. And if you're running, it's actually a constant battle with your mind that tells you, "Oh, you're already tired. Stop." So this training by running also helps you a lot in business, uh, and th- that's what I always remember um, when it comes to like why you should why you should read books, why you should write books. So, awesome.
1: right, as we round up, I would always want to ask, what would be your billion-dollar advice to the world? On entrepreneurship, branding, and doing business
0: in Africa. Billion dollar advice, and only one. (laughs) Um. So my my that's not really an observation. It's more of an observation than advice. I think everything starts to make much more sense, and everything starts to look much better if you start planning much much more long term than everyone uses to um and i'm going to give you an example actually because the the person that has launched rocket internet who then hired me and i would i you know i i was a part of this big company that is now called jumia he wrote his master thesis in 1998 when he was 19 or no sorry he was 20 something um and in '98, he wrote a thesis when he's analyzing the case studies of a lot of successful American companies at that time. But they were still small, you know, like Amazon, and Booking.com, etc. Booking.com, I think it was European, or Expedia. And then he was kind of predicting that this type of business models will also become big in the online space in, in other regions, like Central Eastern Europe, Asia, Latin America, or Africa. And it's 2020, and this guy is still really making business, and he's realizing the goals that he has outlined in his thesis from 98. And that's what also the Chinese are doing, all those Chinese businesses, which are so successful, especially in running businesses. When you ask them what they're doing, is that everything they plan, they plan for decades, if not centuries. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what is really missing in the way we, we talk about business Uh, in in Europe and and also in Africa, we're missing the long-term perspective. Mm -hmm. And I understand many times that, you know, it's hard to plan long-term if you have some fires that you have to put down in the company. (laughs) Um, When everything has to be done yesterday and there's 100 problems that you have to fix in a minute, otherwise everything goes down. I get that. But you also cannot spend all your business time by responding to what's coming to you. You have, you need to find some time to plan, if not in centuries, at least in decades, because then everything's, you look at everything in a, in a different way. So I guess that's my observation. Change the perspective here.
1: Uh, so proper planning, long-term planning is very important in, in doing business, and especially in this part of the world.
0: In both ways, in both directions, both looking in the, uh, uh, you know, in the future, but also looking in the past. Mm. Uh, I really, I I already got myself interested in history, not because I was a history fan, but because I was a business fan. Uh, Reading history books made me understand business so much better, because we all live in cycles.
1: Glad to hear. So, Marisol, where can listeners get in touch with you and uh, service you up to offer?
0: Oh, yeah. So um, if anyone is interested uh, in what I'm doing, reach out to me. Check the book. Check the website ChasingBlackUnicorns.com. What I think what I forgot to mention is that the whole revenue from this book is actually going to a charity that that we have launched. You can also write about it. Um, I don't consider this book as my personal revenue. Uh, So you can check the book. My TED Talks uh Contact me on social media. You have all the links on chasing black unicorns, uh dot com, and, and thanks, Bernard, for l- allowing me to to promote that. <laughs> well, it's, it's a pleasure. I treasure.
1: I, I hope. Um,